I have ideas. I'm sure you do. Sterling Cooper has more failed artists and intellectuals than the Third Reich. You know what? I have good ideas. In fact, I used to carry around a notebook and a pen just to keep track. Direct marketing. I thought of that. Turned out it already existed, but I arrived at it independently. And then I come to this place and you people tell me that I'm good with people. Which is strange. Because I'd never heard that before. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of A Thing Like That. Mad Men About... A Mad Men About Podcast. A podcast about Mad Men, I should say. Um, as always, I'm your spoonerist, spoonerific host, Michael Levito. And I'm Kathleen Levito. <laughs> it was a spoonerism, that's why I said that. It that? wasn't really a spoonerism, was it? What's a spoonerism? So spoonerism, I guess, is traditionally when you switch the... If, if I was saying um, Bon Jovi... If I said John Bovey instead, that would be a spoonerism. Oh, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it's like a thing in linguistics, but I don't know if you're if saying a podcast, a, a Mad Men about podcasts would be a spoonerism exactly, because it's not like, it's not like you're not mixing up the, the consonants first. you're at and you're mixing up the words. I don't, that's not why you're here. Um, <laughs> it might be. We're here to talk about Mad Men, specifically season one, episode four. New Amsterdam, um, written by Matthew Weiner and Lisa Albert, directed by Tim Hunter. Kathleen, thoughts on this episode? Good episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's more personal than I think some of the other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I'm at right now with this. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that you got a closer look at more like it's just I like that things are building out now yeah um and in that you're getting more of a look at people's personal lives you're getting a look at the stories that are going to start to unfold so little by little things are starting to come to fruition and you're understanding you're understanding characters based on their pasts more yeah um it's a good Pete episode because it sort of grows out from this sort of like you know the worst from being like oh he's still the worst but like we know why he's the worst yeah. now right there's sort of a not a not a justification but an explanation for it, um, and I, that's pretty valuable for the show going forward. I feel like, um, yeah, it, it's a very very beat heavy episode. I think, um, mm. and definitely I think sets up what the goal of this character will be and sort of the vibe of this character for the rest of the series. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the synopsis of this. It's a little longer than some other episodes, just because a lot more happens, I feel like. Basically, the beginning, um, Ken and Harry and Pete are all listening to Bob Newhart record in Pete's office, and they're laughing and laughing and laughing, and Trudy sort of unexpectedly drops in to bring Pete to lunch, quote-unquote. Um, while she's in the office, she meets Don, and Peggy's there, and she gives him a very awkward half-wave. Because Pete and Peggy have a history, and he's married now. He's never actually formally introduced. What actually happens, instead of bringing him to lunch, is Trudy brings him to an apartment she wants to buy. Um, it costs thirty-two thousand dollars. The realtor says they can get it for thirty, but Pete's kind of worried because that's a year's salary for him. But Trudy's like, "Ah, we're a young couple, and we can get help." Wink, wink. Please ask your dad for money. Um, also in the office, Don runs into Rachel and Paul Kinsey, who is now working on her account. Um, Don kind of walks her out of the building and is like, hey, can I see you soon? And she's like, uh, how about no, you married creep? Um, 
and Austin and Betty is out walking the dog, and she sees a man knocking on Helen Bishop's door, Helen's ex-husband. She's like, hey, today's supposed to be my day with the kids. Can I use your phone? I don't know why she isn't answering. And Betty's like, um, I mean, you might be who you say you are, but I'll let strange men into my house and just kind of scurries away. Later that night, Helen comes over to apologize, and she kind of chats about her marriage and divorce with Betty. Um, Don comes home and is like, hey, what's up? And then goes directly to his room. And goes directly to his room, yes. Yeah. And important is that Helen's husband lived in the city, or worked in the city, and cheated a lot, which, hmm, sound familiar. Um, meanwhile, in the Campbell family home, Pete asks his dad kind of indirectly about paying for the apartment, saying, oh, it's a lot of money, and, you know, it's a lot of money. And his dad's just kind of like, you know, I don't really think it's a good idea. And generally demeans Pete a lot. He's actually very mean to him. Yeah. He basically calls him a pimp. He says that his line of work is not suited for a white man. Um, he's like, he should have been a lawyer kind of thing. Um, and uh, But when Pete goes back to his apartment, the one he currently owns or rents or whatever, and Trudy asks him about it, he's like, I couldn't ask because my dad's sick. And I don't want to do that, which is a lie. Um, next day at Sterling Cooper, the team presents a campaign to Walter from U.S. Steel on the campaign. I like the campaign, actually. You know, it, it names all these cities and says, brought to you by US, U.S. Steel. So Pittsburgh, brought to you by U.S. Steel. New York, brought to you by U.S. Steel. And Walter doesn't like it, which is weird because he said he liked it the week before. Um, after he leaves, Don says that Pete screwed up. And Pete gives his very famous, I have good idea speech. I'm going to put that speech at the beginning of this episode, but I'm going to kind of like recite it now because I think it's really important. Um, and I like it. It's really good. <clears throat> you know what? I have good ideas. In fact, I used to carry around a notebook and a pen just to keep track. Direct marketing? I thought of that. It turned out it already existed, but I arrived at that independently. And then I come to this place, and you people tell me that I'm good with people, which is strange because I'd never heard that before. Perhaps the biggest cell phone in the show's history. Um, anyway, so Pete storms out and all that. Um, and back in Austining, uh, Helen, the next day, comes and asks Betty if, he, if she can watch Glenn while she goes and volunteers at the John S. Kennedy campaign headquarters. Uh, she's like, yeah, sure. Um, she goes to Helen's house. She sees it's kind of a mess, you know, very cramped. Um, she just kind of hangs out with Glenn, gets up to go to the bathroom, and Glenn just opens the door while she's on the toilet. She comes out and monches him for it. He apologizes. She, he says she's very pretty and asks for a lock of her hair, and she's reluctant, but she does, in fact, give him a lock of her hair. Uh, Pete and Trudy go to dinner with Trudy's parents, and they offer to actually help pay for the apartment, and that angers Pete a lot. Um, and at the St. Regis, where he's still whining and dining well from U.S. Steel, he introduces him to two prostitutes who he calls his cousins, um, and pitches him on another idea for the campaign. U.S. Steel, the backbone of America. So the next day, it's Sterling Cooper, when, Walt, when Don is presenting sort of the reworked uh, campaign to Walter, uh, Walter's like, I know this is what you want to sell me. Pete told me about it the other night, the backbone of America. I love it. This infuriates Don. He fires Pete, tells him to go pack up his things. Don, go Pete just kind of locks himself in the room and just cries while he's drinking, basically. Um, Don goes to Roger and says, hey, I just fired Pete Campbell. He brought him his idea, and Roger's like, yeah, I hate that kid. Well, he says that little shit is actually exactly what he says. Um, but then they get called into Burt Cooper's office. And Bill Gruber says, hey, Pete's family is very well connected, and if they start telling people that we mistreated their son, we're going to, you know, lose out on a lot of good hires and a lot of good work. Um, so he forces them to rescind Pete's firing, but what happens is 
Roger and Don go into his office. Roger lies and says, actually, me and Bert wanted to fire you, but Don fought for you, and this man is now your commanding officer, um, and all of that. And after that, Roger and Don share a drink and sort of lament um, the fate of the younger generation. And Roger's kind of like, ah, whatever. And Don's like, I don't know. It seems pretty bad. Uh, at Betty's therapist, she talks about Glenn and says, the person taking care of him isn't giving him what he needs. Um, and then Pete and Trudy tour their new apartment that they've recently bought. They meet their neighbors who are just so thrilled to have someone who, whose roots go as far back in New York as Pete Campbell's do. Um, and as they're talking to his in-laws and the realtor and all of that, he stands apart and gazes forlornly out at the city. That was actually, I think, pretty tight, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, anyway, what's the theme of this episode? Independence and interdependence. Exactly. Care to expand on that? Sure. Um, in this episode, we see two characters who are trying to assert their independence, that being Pete Campbell and Don. Um, it's interesting because they're in a similar role. Um, they're both going now the providers of a household. Don has been for a while. Pete is now. Um, and they have um, kind of, uh, in Pete's stance, he has a wife who, yes, depends on him, but is also trying to get Pete to depend on people as well for the things that she wants. Trudy has no issue, you know, using her parents for money or asking for money, anything like that. Pete very much does. So you have that like little conflict going on. Um, with Don, um, we don't see him struggling at home so much, but we do see him in the office dealing with um, kind of the hierarchy of, um, you know, why they need Pete Campbell, why does he have to answer to someone, that whole issue. I have more to say on that later. Um, and then at back at home, we see Betty struggling, um, you know, trying to understand a woman who's divorced and no longer has someone to depend on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because... Um, what I found so interesting about the relationship between Pete and Trudy, and now as I think about it, it's like, there's a scene when Helen's talking to Betty about JFK, and she's like, oh yeah, like, he's so handsome, and he's so great, and Betty's just kind of like, oh yeah, I don't know who we're voting for yet, like, the, yeah. the implication there is kind of like, Don's gonna tell her who to vote for, right? And so, the relationship there is like, Don is not only a provider, but he kind of sets the agenda, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Betty's this sort of like, you know, she's great at organizing Sally's birthday party and all that, but Don sort of like, has veto power, it seems. Um, but with Trudy and Pete, Pete's the breadwinner, sure, but Trudy kind of runs the show. Mm -hmm. She tells him to buy, uh, that apartment. Later on, she will make a lot of other decisions that, you know, Pete does not like, and that's a great source of friction in their marriage later on. Um, I hope it's not a spoiler that Pete Campbell ends up having a whirlwind marriage. Um, but, you know, so that, that, that kind of is interesting, and it, it's, it's, Don, um, on the one hand, having too much independence in some regards, especially with regards to his family, because he just kind of disappears and does nothing, and Pete being way too interdependent on his family. Not just his wife to, like, set the agenda, but also um, his parents to provide money and his in-laws. Like, he doesn't... He literally says, like, you know, I don't want you picking out furniture if they give him money, because he doesn't want to be reliant on them and, and beholden to them at all. Um, he wants to be his own man, like he perceives other people in the office to be. Um... And Don wants to sort of, like, you know, do what he wants as well, right? He wants to basically be able to fire Pete, but he can't because it, it would have a nasty ripple effect for the rest of the business. Yeah. Um. And, and that sort of brings me to um, the firing, that this, this sort of metaphor that 
for Cooper when he's explaining why they can't fire Pete. Um, and he goes, <clears throat> New York City is a marvelous machine filled with a mesh of levers and gears and springs, like a fine watch wound tight, always ticking. And Don Draper goes, sounds more like a bomb. So, you know, it, it's talking about the interconnectedness of these very highfalutin clubs and universities that Bert says they would lose connections to if they fired Pete. Um, how dependent they are on this sort of like, you know, flow of employees and clients, and that gives them contact as high up as, he says, Gracie Mansion, which is the residence of the governor of New York, right? It gives them influence. And Don Draper sees this as a dependence, not as a sort of miraculous machine, but as something dangerous. It's a powder keg. It's something waiting to go wrong. Um, and w which is kind of interesting to think about, right? It's, yeah. You were going to say something? Not about Bert Cooper. I see him later. So if you have more to say... It just it just because I, I I what I think you sort of see later on in the series is the sort of the breaking down of that machine. Yeah. Right? Is you see things start to sputter and what happens when the the world doesn't sort of like work in clockwork like you're expecting it to be. Um, a scene later when uh, Roger and Don are sharing a drink, they're having this conversation, um, and Roger mentions that Don's generation, Don is a a couple decades younger than Roger, at least. He's, I think he's supposed to be, like, 15 years younger. Yeah. Like, it's like Roger served in World War II, Don served in the Korean War. Korea, yeah. So it's, like, at least, like, a 10-year difference is my guess. Oh, one thing, sorry, back up, back to going back to Bert, before they have the conversation about why they need to keep Pete in for kind of this legacy reason of, you know, if we have him, we can get all these people. Uh, Roger and Don walk in, and Roger sees a picture of himself as a kid with Bert. And that's when it's kind of revealed to us that um, the Sterling Cooper, the Sterling is actually Roger's father. Yeah. Roger's father and Bert Cooper started the company, and Roger was ushered in. Mm -hmm. um, so you see already that legacy, that independent, that interdependence on lineage mm -hmm. coming through yeah. in the company before they have that discussion about it. Mm -hmm. um, but jumping back uh, to Don and Roger having a drink, and Roger talking about you know. Your generation, as in Don's generation, doesn't know how to drink. You know, we drink because we can. You all drink because you're sad. Um, and this leads to a whole discussion where Roger is basically glorifying. Um, I don't remember the words exactly. Not glorifying, I don't think. But I think he is really identifying himself as this World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. um, and he mentions, he says a line and that rubs Don the wrong way. And Don ends up saying, well, maybe we're more comfortable um, being Wait. Don says, maybe I'm not as comfortable being powerless as yes, you Yes, exactly. That's what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea, too, that this is going to, as as the younger generations in the show start to grow up, we get to, we start seeing the shift and, you know, how people are expressing the individuality and their power. And I think that is huge in this scene. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's just a 15-year difference there, Roger is someone who we'll see again and again, really hold some ties to his time in World War II in the military. And there is that reliance on each other. You are a unit. You work together. You know, you take orders, you have jobs, and you operate in set ways so that you can, you know, accomplish the same goals. Don is not that same person. Mm -hmm. And he is trying to assert his independence from that by being like, I, I am okay, like, okay taking my own power back. I don't need people to tell me you know, what roles I'm supposed to have, or I don't need a chain of command kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that seems also interesting because they talk about, you know, sort of generations and stuff, and 
there's an exchange where Roger goes, I bet there were people in the Bible walking around complaining about kids today. So we're talking about this um, ubiquitous sort of concern that older generations have for younger generations. And Don Draper goes, kids today, they don't, they've got no one to look up to because they're looking up to us. And actually, after he says that, Roger passes him the glass. And it's mm-hmm. this sort of shot where it's just their hands, one glass going to the other. I thought that was kind of like an interesting stand for like the passing of a torch mm-hmm. or was the passing of a glass, right? He's kind of passing off this destructive habit in a way to the younger generation and this idea that they they've got no one to look up to because they're looking up to us it's i there's an interdependence in the development of generations and all of that right mm-hmm. because the younger generation is inextricably linked to the older generation because the older generation raises them mm-hmm. right i always find that ironic and maybe it's because i'm a younger person but i always find that ironic when people complain about younger generations, because it's like, especially when they're like, oh, it's like, you know, that everyone gets a trophy generation. It's like, well, you were the ones handing out the trophies, right? Yeah. So there's sort of a interdependence there, right? Where it's like, you can't have a generation to react against because without shaping it first, right? There's sort of a, I think there's like an Ouroboros there sort of thing going on. That brings me back to the beginning, of, or closer to the beginning of the episode, earlier in the episode, um, when we are looking at the characters of Trudy and Pete mm-hmm. and why one is more comfortable relying on their parents than the other. Um, Pete is clearly very uncomfortable being around his parents. He doesn't want to be near them. He doesn't want to ask for their help. He immediately gets in a fight with them. It's not a happy household, and you can clearly see that if if we're to assume that this was entire his entire life, which I do believe in the conversation they mention, always having like fights and stuff, mm-hmm. Um, you can see how that shaped him. Um, and, you know, his parents complaining about the, the, the decisions that he's made in his life, and it's like, well, why do you think I made these? Because of the mm. ways that I was raised mm. influenced me to do this. Mm. Trudy, on the other hand, is this bright, bubbly, really gregarious person who's totally okay leaning on her parents or asking for her parents' help. And when they're at dinner, you can see that they are just throwing love onto her. Mm. You know, they're so... They're, like, they sh- share so much praise... Um, so much adoration, so much like comfort that of course she's gonna lean on them again because they're there for her and they constantly show that they're there for mm. her. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it, it's 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 funny how different they are. Their yeah. attitudes are, um, and it yeah, it's it, you can still they're definitely products of products of their parents for sure. Um, I think shifting away from that narrative, even you you talk about like the Ellen scene, uh, not Ellen, Helen mm-hmm. scenes. And, um, you know, she, it leans more heavily on the independent side, right? Where Betty goes to Helen's house and it's, it's not Betty's perfect little sort of what you thought was kind of tacky house, um, in the last episode, but yeah. it's, it's, it's very, it's very cluttered. It's very messy. Right. And all of that, like the ironing more just kind of hanging out there. Um, and she, Glenn is the one who irons. Yeah. Glenn's the one who irons. Cause she gives him like a nickel for yeah. everything or whatever. Um, and I, I kind of view that as like Betty, like viewing like the cost of independence, right? Yeah. Like independence is great. It does mean you have to do everything yourself, though, a lot of the times. Um, and when Betty's in the bathroom, she goes through Helen's like drawers and stuff, mm-hmm. and you actually see um, birth control pills, yeah. right? Which is kind of like the symbol of fem- feminine independence in like the mid twentieth century, right? Um, so Helen is sort of like the embodiment of independence for all of its ups and all of its downs. And it is an idea that is so foreign to Betty. Um, and seeing her sort of come to grips with that and, and grapple with it um, is, is kind of interesting. 
And we see her do that later in the episode at the psychiatrist, where she's talking to him about her experience at the house, talking to Helen, and she just talks about how I think she's jealous of me. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I, I was in a sorority, I know what jealousy looks like. Yeah. And again, we have the sororities coming in, that set structure, that set, these are my friends kind of structure, um, but also with the idea that clearly she must have it better because of the differences. Like, she doesn't even understand why someone, you know, mm-hmm. uh, automatically, like, she must be jealous. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I had something else to say, Helen. Oh, I think it's funny. Um, when you see how Helen comes to Betty's house to talk about her husband, and she mentions that her husband works in life insurance, and he says, well, you know, if he dies, at least we're set. <laughs> and there is that sense, even though that they're divorced, mm-hmm. she's still his beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And there is that in, independ- uh, interdependence there of mm-hmm. like, eh, you know, it's whatever. It's interesting, too. This is like a life insurance comes up a lot. Like there's a life, not a lot, like two out of the times I can think of. There's a life insurance salesman at the beginning of the mm-hmm. episode prior to this that recognizes Don as Dick Whitman. And then there's a character who is an insurance salesman who play into peace story as well yeah um so i don't know what that means but it's something to think about going forward i guess um going back to sterling cooper though it's it the the sort of whole debacle with u.s steel is 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 it's it's reveals the um interdependence of the ad business right um accounts depends on creative depends on accounts um you know creative pitched the idea and accounts was there to sort of like butter up U.S. Steel about it, and then when that didn't happen, it broke down, right? They're dependent on each other as much as they would, right? And that mm-hmm. becomes actually tension going throughout the rest of the series, like who needs more um, power, creative, or accounts? And I don't fully understand it because I'm not in the ad business, so it's like I don't get how you can really have one or the other, prioritize one over the other, but um, it, it, it's a sort of tug of war that's established pretty early on. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, the whole conversation about steel, like Don and Walter have this whole argument about the advertisements, and Don's like, or Walter's like, it looks like we're selling cities here, but we're not. And Don's, he goes, well, do you want like you know a steel beam with like a pat of butter on on a dinner plate? Like I can do that. But it's interesting because people only care about steel because it's used to build things. Mm-hmm. You can't just sell steel because it's steel. You have to refer to something else. It's very interdependent on its uses to be useful as a commodity, right? Steel in and of itself is not valuable. Steel turned into a high-rise building, turned into a fork or whatever, right? That's what's it. That's what, that's, you know, steel itself is is not that important. And and that sort of, the interdependence of the economy and sort of like fine-tuned watch that Bert Cooper finds about um, is really interesting. And now that I think about it, um, when Bert Cooper is talking about Pete Campbell's history, um, his mother's side are the Dykemans, which was this old Dutch, rich um, New York family. They, you know, were, were, were friendly with the Roosevelts and all of this. Um, and they, uh, they they used to own, he says, I think everything above 125th Street. Um, but he talks about how they sold all of it in the crash of 29. And he goes, some people have no confidence in this country. Um, but what I think is interesting about that is that the Great Depression was a time when that watch fell apart, Right. It was the interdependence of the economy um, and then having little pits of that economy fail that caused the Great Depression. Um, so even as Bert Cooper is opining on sort of like 
the miracle of the fine oiled American industrial machine. He himself is like referring back to a time when it absolutely just was mm-hmm. destroyed. Um, so you can see why these characters want to be independent because they don't want to be they don't want to go down with the ship. They want to have a way out if they can, and they want to exert their role upon the world without being dependent on anyone else. In that um, not the Burt scene, in the scene where they're where they're pitching the first idea for steel, there's also a part that um, I wrote down because um, I thought it was noteworthy. Um, and then you kind of brought it up in talking about who is more important or how do you prioritize accounts over um, creative. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't work in advertising, I work in marketing, but I do act as a liaison between um, art departments and an account. Uh, I work for a client. Um, so I see how things are balanced. Um, and uh, the first critique that the steel guy, what is his name again? Walter. Walter makes is like this artwork. I think he said like it looks old or stodgy. Well, he, he said it reminds him of the WPA, which was a um, New Deal program, the Works Progress Administration. And Don goes, "Oh, we can throw out the art." Mm-hmm. And you see um, Sal in the background, like, "Like, oh my God, no, we can't!" <laughs> like, what are you saying about my art? And I think that's another thing too, where when talking about balancing accounts and art, that's constantly a clash in this. Um, uh, series and they do need to work together. There's a thing though where accounts tends to be more um, loyal, I would say, because their goal is to keep people on board and to do that you need to work with both the company and them. So you're constantly playing this game of being tied in between people and there is a sense of de- in the, or interdependence that happens because mm-hmm. you're relying on st- keeping these accounts together so you have to be people's like go-to person Mm. the artists have artist mentalities and like not to throw around stereotypes but artists tend to be artists because they're independent thinking they're big thinkers and you see that in sal's reaction it's like what do you mean that this is just like you know something that we can throw away like Mm. this is my work yeah like what are you saying um and so i think that like they tend to like you see the independence in the art uh or in the creative side where they're just like everything is brand new and I want to have all the freedom to choose everything I want. And we see this come later way down the line as well. Um, when some new technology is added to (laughs) Sterling Cooper, but you see also within the structure of the, um, the company, how we have those who are comfortable with interdependence and those who have more of an independent spirit. Yeah. Um, I could go on and on about the divides between marketing and sales because I also work in marketing. Yeah. But in a, in a sense, it was all but destroyed because the person in charge of sales, who happens to also be the CEO, decided it wasn't important. But it's funny because... Not throwing shade or anything. Right, but, right. <laughs> um, but it's funny because I uh, I had to take this like certification thing for an inbound marketing thing, and it was like... It was they, they had a, there was a whole section about like bridging the divide between sales and marketing, and they asked like people in sales and people in marketing to... like. Um, describe the other and like I don't remember what Mark said about sales but like for sales thing about marketing they called them like arts and crafts yeah <laughs> which is like yeah and and that, that but I think that tension bubbles up actually a lot in yeah. that ending. and the things that I've seen it's that I often see that um I don't do sales I do like client like account work mm-hmm. for the best general term I can say um and those on the account always feel like they need to control the artists where they don't have faith that the artist can actually 
pull together a vision. Mm. Um, so it's like they're more like, they're like, no, they don't understand the vision. And the artist is just like, no, this is like what I do. Mm. Um, so I think there is that tension as well as like the artist has seen as like out of touch with the business. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's interesting. And there's also a manipulation on both sides. This yeah. is just like, we're mm. just going to go off on a little tangent. Um, my best friend at my office has worked in advertising for decades and she worked in at many advertising companies and you know worked always in creative and what the creative would always do is you give them three ideas you give them i think it was the lackluster idea mm. to like raise their expectations you give them the wild idea that you want them to choose and then you give them the middle of the road idea you know they're gonna choose mm. um and i think that that's like yeah, that's a telling thing too. I, yeah, yeah I, I had to sort of design this. This can sound so boring because it is. I had to like design a spreadsheet for my job, um, and I was having like I wasn't familiar with Excel, so I, I, I was asking this other guy for help, knew about it a lot, and I was presenting like three different options. It's like I really like this one, but I don't know which one he's gonna choose, and blah blah blah. Like I was working with this like honeypot. It. I was like, what? He's like, just like make the one you want to be chosen look the best, and all mm -hmm. the other two just don't make them look as good. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, a lot of sandbagging, a lot of manipulation in there. Um, yeah, office politics. Office politics. So great. <laughs> but we all need each other, you yeah, know? Yeah, right. You, it's like yeah, you can't yeah. do anything. Exactly. Without the, you know, without the account, there's no reason to be creative. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the account can't get anywhere unless there is creative. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. Do you think, I think we've explored that theme enough? Let me, now? can I just skim? Go, my, go my stuff. Um, oh, 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 oh. Um, Betty, when Betty goes over, two things. When Betty goes over to um, Helen's house to take care of Glenn, mm. she and Glenn, there's a scene of them just sitting on the couch watching TV at opposite ends of the couch from each other. And the first thing that I thought was, like, Betty is not good with kids. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because she's the mother. Yeah. And she's supposed to be the stereotypical great homemaker. She's supposed to be the one taking care of everyone. Um, and I think it's funny that she's she's playing that role, but she's not actually that role. She's not as re reliable as mm -hmm. she seems like she would be or she should be. And then later when she's in the psychiatrist's office and says that, you know, Glenn is not getting what he needs from the person taking care of him. I'm just like, all right, like, let's look at who's <laughs> talking right now. Yeah. Um, also, looking at her life and seeing Dawn constantly bouncing around from woman to woman, you know, just skipping out on parties and stuff, she's being taken care of by him. So mm -hmm. how can also can she say that, you know? Yeah. She's basically telling her own story. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, definitely a lot of projection there. Yes. Um, and all that, and like, oh, this is about my friend. Let's call her Helen. Mm -hmm. Is what I I feel like the the, the psychiatrist yeah. has been thinking a lot. <laughs> um, it's like she's jealous of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's everything. Yeah, I think that's everything that I jotted down. Cool. Ready to go to our awards then. Ooh. No, we're not. This is not, this is now getting very tangential in the internet yeah. and everything. But um, to just go there, the very last thing I wrote down was um, 
when they decide that Pete Campbell is staying on board. Rather, Roger, as you mentioned before, lies to Pete and says that Don was the one who stood up for him. Um, and I think that's them tying a sense of dependence onto Pete, um, between Pete and Don. Mm-hmm. Um, because now Don feels, or Pete feels like he's beholden to Don yeah. for, you know, saving him. Mm-hmm. True. Cool. Well, speaking of Pete, it's now time to award our Pete, Camp- Pete Campbell Memorial Worst of the Week Award. Mm-hmm. Who who gets your vote, Kathleen? I'm going to go with Betty. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why? Um, I just feel like we start to see her unravel in this episode. We start to see her prejudices. Um, we see her being creepy. <laughs> um, she's not... Yeah, that's why. I just think that I think there are worse characters. Actually, no, I am caught between two. I'm going to give it to Betty because we just start to see her unravel. But there is a more... I will. I want to know who you said. Oh, I was going to say Pete's dad, Andrew Campbell. Oh, that's true. Um, because you can't have... Kind of going to our like interlocking intergenerations thing, you can't have the worst without having the guy who created the worst. Yeah. The guy who created the worst is Andrew Campbell. And you see why. He is clearly racist. Yeah. He's sort of like classist in a way. He's like an elitist. Yeah. Even though it's not even apparent that he himself has made any money because it's implied that he married into wealth, right? Yeah. It was the Dykemans. It was his wife who had all the money. Um, and he's he, he's just, you know, totally sort of cold and it seems uncaring. Um, Pete actually actually says, why is it so hard for you people to give me anything? Which is, again, another, like, he, he feels like he, and that, it's interesting, because it's almost like he wants to be interdependent, but he isn't. Yeah. And then Andrew Campbell says, we gave you everything, we gave you your name, and what have you done with it? It's like, well, what the hell is his name, Andrew? Come yeah. on. Like, um, and what has he done with it? Like, he's, he seems like he's making good money. Um, granted, he's totally sleazy and just getting prostitutes for clients, but, like, um, this is what you did back then. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew Campbell, that's my vote. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. All right. A Roger Sterling Best Line of the Week Award. So this is weird because the, the best part, it's all in the delivery. And I don't know if you agree with it, but it's when Roger is done yelling at Pete and says to treat Don like his commanding officer and all of that. And Pete goes, I won't let you down, Don. And then Roger yells, Jesus, Campbell. <laughs> Don't ever say that. And then they leave. <laughs> I would agree. That's <laughs> it is, it, it's funny because it, like, it means nothing. And it, it's just like, it's just such like a, it's, it, 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 it totally like undercuts like the, 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 the graveness and the gravity that um, Roger was trying to put on the situation. And, and Pete's just like, I won't. And then Roger's just like, get a hold of yourself, <laughs> man. Come on. Have some self-respect. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, right. I agree with that one. Yeah. I will say for um, if you have more of a poetic leaning, I would go and listen to um, uh, Roger's speech about why the difference between drinking and his generation and yeah. the younger generation. Yeah. But for comedic purposes, definitely that one. No, that that one's also good. So yeah. Um, I guess we're on spoilers then. Yeah, on spoilers.
bits I did have is that when Pete and Trudy are getting dinner with the Vogels, um, Trudy's parents, they, uh, Trudy's like, oh, we have big news. And, and then I think either her mother or father goes, already? Mm-hmm. Implying that she's pregnant. Um, sort of baby drama will be a big thing with Pete and Trudy. Um, and, and Trudy's push to constantly have a child. And Pete's reluctance to do so and also their inability to do it. Um, so, yeah. It, it implies that that's going to be a really important thing. Yeah. I, B- Betty cutting her hair, there will be some drama around Sally cutting her hair and mm-hmm. Betty sort of being like, when I was a little girl, I always wanted to have long hair. Like, I, I, I cried to my mother and said I wanted to keep it, blah, blah, blah. Um, Betty is also reading a book on Italy when Helen comes yeah. home from volunteering. Um, of course, they'll go to Italy later. We talked about that a little bit in our last episode. Um, and it's the account versus creative tensions that bubble mm-hmm. up. The... Um Betty talking about um, that Glenn is not getting the support he or the person taking care of him is not getting the support he needs. We'll see later that the support Betty thinks she has falls begins to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the like low key Glenn Betty romance. Yeah, yeah. Develops in a diff- like in interesting ways. <laughs> It's it's funny because I can't... So, Glenn is played by Matthew Weiner's son. And I can't decide... Well, there are two things. I think one, I think Matthew Weiner, who's, like, on the record as being, like, kind of, like, a, a problematic person, like, I think he... There might be part of him that just, like, is fantasizing about his son hooking up with January Jones. Like, that's, like, part of my only explanation for the Glenn character... Um, but I think more so it just it, it, it reinforces I think Betty and Glenn's loneliness right they're ostensibly yeah. in a family and in a, like a nice little suburban place but they both are sort of locked into a childish mindset and um, both both are in need yes so yeah mm. alright alright So any any final thoughts? I have one. You go then. Cool. This is the thing I've been thinking about, but it feels like the Camels are kind of supposed to be the Kennedys, and perhaps not like super like didactically or, mm-hmm. or like didactically doesn't make sense there, but like not like a one to one comparison. And like definitely because they're not supposed to be sort of like Irish Catholics, they're supposed to be like very waspy and very sort of like Dutch and English or Scottish actually. I think Campbell is, but um. The, the, uh, Andrew, or Pete mentions, like, oh, you helped out, um, what's his, Buck, is Buck? I think it's Buck. Yeah. Um, you know, like, when Buck hit that girl with his car, he helped him out, which reminded me of Ted Kennedy, um, senator from Massachusetts, brother of John F. Kennedy, um, very famously got into a car accident where he drove off a bridge in Chappaquiddick, um, and the woman in the seat next to him drowned. And he kind of got away scot free. I don't know if it's exactly one to one thing, but sort of like the the old moneyness of it, mm-hmm. the sort of like, um, and also the, the, the Joseph P. Kennedy, the, the father of John and Robert and all their siblings, was famously terrible, um, and was famously, um, you know, sort of like competed with his sons in terms of like womanizing and things like that. 
and this is like a minor spoiler, but we'll see that crop up with a, mm-hmm. a bit, um, kind of mostly off screen with Andrew and Buck and, and Pete. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I have any final word. I think um, the only thing I'll say is I think that it's a little interesting that we don't see so much of Betty in this episode. Not Betty, sorry, Peggy in this episode. Because I feel like her her resistance on the system of interdependence um, would have been an interesting plot point. Mm-hmm. Um, but she gets to do that herself later on, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Bud, not Buck. Bud. Oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Nickname of a B. Um, okay. Is that it? That's it. Cool. Um, thanks for listening. Um, you know, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, um, Google Podcasts, iTunes. It's so far only on SoundCloud, but hopefully eventually it will soon be on those other places. I need to take a look at my Buzzsprout account. Um, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter. At El Levito and Letterboxd, I'm a Mara Mike. On what do I use? Instagram, I'm Rise to the Sun. Yeah, and we have another podcast called The Real Life Oscar Challenge. We do with my roommate. Um, that is on all the podcast, mm-hmm. like basically everything. So look that up. Uh, we contribute to and edit a website called ThePostWriter.com. So check that out. Some good stuff going there. Um, but other than that, thanks for listening. Yeah.